Hey everyone, this is Cassius Felicella, and you're listening to Homeroom, a podcast for students looking to break into the startup space. And today, we're speaking with the co-founder and CTO of Bolt Threads, David Breslauer. So David and I had an incredible conversation surrounding the building and scaling of a company, what it was like in the early days to now partnering with some of the biggest apparel companies in the world, like Adidas and Lululemon. His insight and wisdom was bar none. So without further ado, I'm really excited to jump into the episode and welcome David to the program. What would you say is the most counterintuitive thing? about starting a business? What what is counterintuitive about starting a company? And I think one of my biggest surprises in terms of uh, as the company grows and scales is how quickly it goes from being, particularly after a series A, it goes from being your company to our company. Now, no one's going to care about it as much as you and your co-founders. But you know, once you raise funding and you have a board of directors, when you have employees who are passionate about the goals, it's, it ceases to be, except for very extreme, unusual circumstances, it ceases to be your singular vision. Now that can go well because you get great feedback. You get other people who help guide you. It can, it can be for the best if you have crazy ideas and need to be moderated. But also, you know, incentives sometimes misalign. Employees are focused on their careers, but want to work at the company. They want to stay at the company, but they also want a career directory. Board members are following their fiduciary obligation, which tends to focus on revenue. Um, And so you might be restricted in terms of all the things you can do. And, you know, everybody in the Bay Area talks about founder-friendly, founder-friendly, and that's generally true. But I think particularly when you start a company so young getting past the notion of you know, it's your it's just your thing eventually it becomes you know a, a not only just a group effort with the employees but then also you've got shareholders and board members who will have different incentives uh, that you're accountable to was this an emotion that you felt almost immediately when that new round was raised and you had to brace yourself a little bit how does your mindset change and then how do you how do you ensure that the employees don't get carried away as well or or even yourself and the co-founding team i mean i I don't think it was something i felt immediately it was a slow trip someone advised me in the early days of starting a company they said once you raise financing recognize that over a sufficiently long period of time your investors and you will have different incentives and that turns out to be very much true they need to pay back their funds they want to exit um so that might be different than what you want to do with the company um i think in the early days i thought you know everybody wanted to jump on and be part of the startup journey and really learning to appreciate what I thought is solvable risks, other people were factoring in a lot more, a lot more um, information into their decision. How does this affect their career? What would they do next after this? How long do they reasonably expect to be there? Um, versus, you know, as when I started my company, which, you know, I was young at the time, you know, just thinking as it singularly from the perspective of like, we're going to start a company and change the world, get on the journey. Um, and then you learn over time that, you know, the factors that 
every different person has to consider at every different point in time in their lives and their career that is just so distinct from yours. It is not so simple as just get on, get on the horse. Right. Well, let, let's talk about those early days. I'm, I'm really curious to know what motivated you and what attracted you to this space in the first place. And then perhaps talk about some of your education and how some of those projects may have morphed into what the company is today. Yeah. You know, I honestly, I have a complete background in academia. My family's all academics. I knew nothing of business. I thought very much business was you invent something and then an MBA takes it, turns a crank and turns it into a business, which isn't totally, totally wrong, but it's not necessarily that simple, particularly in new, when developing a new industry um, and, a, and a greatly new product. But I had no background in it whatsoever. I purely wanted to do science and engineering. But over my graduate school work, I found that I kept, I kept losing enthusiasm for answering scientific questions for the sake of just an understanding. I kept seeking another set of sort of relevance. And I, and I would, at the same time, was meeting these pure scientists that, are, that were these extraordinarily brilliant people who were motivated sheerly by understanding the universe and understanding biology. So I realized I'm not that. It was very romantic. I wanted to be that. I was like, I thought, like, it was like, well, how do I, how, what does this apply to? What is this useful to? And I just, it just kind of kept going until in terms of what is the application that suddenly publishing a paper and making a discovery that may lead to something else that contributes to the body of knowledge wasn't good enough to me. So, and I didn't know what to do with that, that frustration though. And it was actually my co-founders who came to me and said, you know, let's start a company. And that I really didn't, don't even think I knew what that meant. I was very fortunate to be in a situation where I had still had funding to be a graduate student for another two years, even though I was coming up against what would probably be my last year. So it was almost a no risk endeavor to at least write some grants and see, and then it all worked out. Uh, but my journey was very much um, just one of taking a leap and I have no regrets. And I think I was well suited to do it, but I did not have any ideas up front. The, what I would say about this new era now there are so many more resources available than bear in mind when I did that, it was 12 years ago. Now it's not as much of a leap. Yes, you still have to take emotional and a mental leap, but the amount of money such that you can raise money and pay yourselves, the number of ways you can finance starting a company, it used to only be with government grants in, in the buy, sorry, number of ways you can finance a company in the biological space used to only be government grants. Now you can get angel money. So whereas you know the economic risk might not be as great, the perceived risk to your career trajectory is not as great as others will look highly, more highly on experiences, you know, particularly if you do well. Um, but the emotional leap is still there. What am I doing? And how do I create something out of nothing? No, 100%. I, I was going to ask as well, 12 years ago, was it still seen as a bit of a taboo subject to take that entrepreneurship path? I know nowadays it is a bit more in vogue. No. So in my day, um, 
my day 12 years ago or so, we were still at a time where starting a company in software was considered very common, particularly in the Bay Area. It'd become a thing and companies were getting acqui-hired by Facebook and stuff like that. Um, so startups were very in vogue in software, but not yet even hardware. Now you could start a consumer electronics hardware company and no one would think twice about it. And absolutely not in bio, bio, biological sciences. People had done it, not to say people, people hadn't done it. Um, really only if you were in pharmaceuticals or medical devices did you start a company. But for the most part, the idea was you became a professor. Again, there was, there was an era of people working on biofuels and stuff, but it was sort of the exception, the people who went off to become entrepreneurs. All professors wanted their students to become professors, you know, and that was their professor's legacy. So, you know, I think my, my advisor was probably disappointed when I said I was going to go start a company. Um, now, I think that attitude has changed. It's so much more commonplace and a lot of glory comes from, oh, look what was commercialized out of my lab. And there's a recognition that in many ways to successfully commercialize a technology, you build a startup out of it versus it's the rare technology that is just so uh, foundational in the patents that, the, that it just gets licensed to a big company and the university makes money off of it. Well, let's talk about that because Milo, a technology that your company has created, has landed crazy deals with like, for example, Lululemon. Lululemon recently just sponsored Team Canada's Olympic team for all of their clothing. I mean, there's, these are not small names. How do you go from a company that was in a bit of a weird space 12 years ago <laughs> to now where you are? Um, not easily, but <laughs> I will say... What I want to caution is when I say that, it's not meant to be discouraging. The biomaterials industry in particularly apparel was very unestablished. So I often joke that we spent half of our existence educating people about biomaterials and the opportunities to engineer biology and the other half doing technology development. We, we, were, we were a little too early. Had we come six years later, we would have probably missed the boat on the technology, but we were much better suited to have conversations with industry. We were extraordinarily persistent. And I think what, what Bolt did well, what we've done well in terms of, that has, that has served us in terms of partnering with big names is being very honest about what we don't know, bringing in experts in areas to help figure out how to adapt our technology to a product and adapt that product to turn to and develop it to be commercializable rather than say, what is, what is our technology? Let's just figure out how, where we can commercialize it, which is in some ways, the history of our industry is I've developed a technology that can make something. Now I'm going to try to figure out how to commercialize it versus how do I continue to adapt what I've developed with my technology to something that lends itself towards a product market fit. Right. Okay. Another follow-up question I have to that is from more broadly speaking, I'm wondering what thoughts would you have and comments for students that are perhaps looking to go down this path? You mentioned that there is an element of never giving up. I agree. But what should people be aware of? I, I feel like there's a lot that can go wrong. 
I think you need to find a co-founder um, and that's a dating process. So it can take time that you like or that you can get along with and work with that has a complementary skill set to you. So in many ways, in a professional level, my, my co-founder and the CEO, we are, we are night and day. We have a huge overlap in terms of our interests and very personally aligned. Professionally, he has more of a business and a, mac- and a macroeconomic mind, a more theoretical and strategic mind. I'm more of a doer and a technological optimist, and I have no interest in certain aspects of the financial strategy. It's just like, it's just... I, you know, I just can't think about it. So, you know, we complement each other in that way. My, my best ideas come after I've debated them with him, not by myself. And I would, I would argue the same for him. And that's hard. You can get your technology or your product first and then find a co-founder. But, you know, you could also do it the other way. I would say we've been successful in being co-founders and just keep adapting to the market and the situations and what the demands are and keep adapting to technologies until we found product market fit. I would, on the other end, say, if you think you have an idea, remember that as you are trying to validate it, you are looking for something people would pay money for. Now, that's not meant to be overly sort of trite it's just it's very hard with technology and there's a lot of it's very easy to get wrapped up in things people might pay money for people might want to talk about but it's like if you can figure out just then this is what product market fits means what is solving a problem that someone would just buy over and over again how can you make take technology make your technology do that and just keep focusing on that. Now, that doesn't mean when you pitch to investors and you pitch, tell your story to the public, which is marketing, it's, very, it's a very different story. And it might be about the exciting things your technology could do. But for your first step, what will people pay for? What were those early days like then? Like when you were establishing the team, the culture, what were those conversations like? I, I feel like it's very difficult given that a biology company, biotechnology company, there's so many moving parts. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's very challenging. I mean, in the, in the beginning, I think we didn't know what we were trying to commercialize, which markets we were going after, what our technology was going to be. And so we're just doing stuff that was generally within a direction of progress Um, (laughs) um, and trying to figure it out. You know, there is, there's always going to be some of that. You're always going to be building the, building the plane and flying it at the same time. If you can at least find a way to bootstrap yourself, then you just have more leverage in the future. And ideally you bootstrap yourself with something that uses your technology to show people that, and investors that there's demand for something your technology can make, not just bootstrap yourself by any means necessary. But I think back in, 10, 20 years ago, there was a concern that if you were to use your technology and get a revenue stream in a market, your investors would just force you to chase that revenue stream forever. And therefore, you couldn't realize the dream of your technology. Now, that's not, I would say now uh, investors are more founder friendly, more expansively thinking. But if that, I will say to be cautious, if that revenue stream is growing exponentially, then yeah, you're probably going to get stuck, maybe not doing what you wanted to be doing. Um, but if you can figure out a way to do it that helps fund 
your work and prove out your model, then it's a great way to start. What would you say has been the biggest thing that's changed from day one till now? You know, day one, it was doing the science and managing a scientist and kind of figuring it all out, caring about everything and caring about every detail and every problem. You, As the company grows and you have to do more things, you have to um, pay attention to different sort of layers of abstraction and figure out what's a big problem. There's always a fire. What's a fire that's worth your attention? What's the first fire that needs to be put out? What's the fire at your front door? What's a fire that's going to burn out on its own? And accepting that is amongst the hardest things. Particularly, you have to talk to your friends who work at other companies and realize even the biggest, best managed companies look like a shit show inside. Um, But that's because, you know, there's always something. It's a human, it's a, it's an organization of humans. There's always, and you know, if you, if there's not a little chaos, are you really pushing boundaries? So what is acceptable? And I, you know, being a perfectionist and being a scientist, always wanting to understand why wanting to fix problems and just having to let go of a lot of them. That was probably the biggest thing. Well, I, I didn't have this on the list. I'm always curious to ask, what would you say you're passionate about that you don't get asked about a lot? I mean, I love all things technology and I have, I have a weird obsession with, with task management and productivity software, all of which I found to be completely non-sticky and useless in a way. And I just end up going back to a legal pad. Uh, so hey, my best friend and I have a constant obsession with trying to find better ways to manage our to-dos and productivity and this and that, and just complain and whine about how none of these things really work. And at the end of the day, I just use a pad of paper. That's been, you know, my best tool. Beyond that, before COVID, I was training in Krav Maga. I was doing self-defense courses and I was about to get my blue belt and then COVID hit and the whole gym shut down. So that went went by the wayside. I, I, you know, I gotta say one of the things that I didn't realize I was going to be interested in that I have been is sort of organization building applying a lot of sort of the problem solving skills and scientific inquiry skills and optimization skills I developed just as a scientist and engineer to how do you design an organization? How do you build an organization? Um, what are the best practices? What works? What doesn't? Um, and that's that's been a very interesting journey um, and something I've discovered I've enjoyed that I didn't anticipate. That's, do you have any books on general technology, business, anything that's helped you along the way? What are some ones that are kind of nuggets that you've found very helpful? You know, um, Measure What Matters, which is about OKRs and putting in place OKRs. I mean, there's a million OKR books out there setting objectives and key results. Um, and you've got to take them all with a grain of salt. But I think there there's a lot of value in there in terms of how you're how you're organizing a, a group of people to accomplish a goal. Um, for students, I would say read a book on negotiation. I find myself continually advising people to take a negotiation class, practice, learn. You'd be surprised once your mind is open to how people who know about negotiation think about negotiation or just freeing your mind to like the fear of from the fear of sort of rejection or the constraints of what you think you're negotiating versus what could be a bigger 
bigger pie. So read getting past no and some of negotiation, but those are some of the most valuable things I've read. Okay, so this concludes my conversation with David Breslauer, the co-founder and CTO of Bold Threads. If you like this episode, be sure to give it a download as well as a rating and review wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, I'm your host, Cassius Felicella. Thanks for listening.